Psalm 37. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd use this passage of Scripture to encourage our hearts today, tomorrow, next week, until Jesus, your son, tarries. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Are you aware of the fact that this earth is filled with evildoers and workers of iniquity? Yeah, some of you aren't convinced. There are evildoers and workers of iniquity on the earth. The Bible calls them wicked. And the Bible tells us that our response to them can be threefold in a negative way. Number one, we can fret because of them, and it's obvious why we would do that, because of the harm that they can do. We can be envious of them, or jump down to verse 7, verse 8, we can be angry. Now, you put fret together, you put envy together, and you put anger together, and you got yourself an emotional, emotional problem. Right? Now, let's be more specific, though, on why those three things happen to us. Let's look at verse 7. What does the evildoer and the worker of iniquity, what happens to him in verse 7? He prospers in his way. And number two, he brings wicked schemes to pass. And one of the things that bothers us is that people who don't know the Lord, don't love the Lord, how can they prosper? And how can they bring wicked schemes to pass that they can actually pull off? Look at verse 12. What else does the wicked do? The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. Verse 14. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. See, we're just we're gathering together all of these reasons why we have these emotional responses of fear and envy and anger toward the wicked. Jump down to verse 16. When we are told that a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked, I think of the book of Proverbs, where if you trace the word better in the book of Proverbs, it'll say things like, well, if you're having a dinner at your house and everybody's fighting, is it going to be a pleasant experience? No. It would be better for you if you just go somewhere and eat a burger in peace. Right? Well, it is better, the little that a righteous man has is better than what? The riches of many wicked. Go to verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not what? He has, doesn't repay. He has no intention of repaying. He's going to cheat you out of it from the start. That's the implication of this passage of Scripture. 
verse 32. Go to verse 32. The wicked, what? Watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. And then David, who wrote this psalm, gives us a personal illustration in verses 34 and 35. At the end of 34, he says, When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. And that's frustrating when we see that happen. But there's another group of people in Psalm 37 that you and I ought to be aware of, aware of and that's the group that we would find ourselves a part of. Instead of being the wicked, the Bible calls us the righteous. You have the righteous and you have the wicked. And the interesting strategy about this particular passage of Scripture is David talks about the wicked, then he goes over and talks about the righteous, he goes back and talks about the wicked, he goes back and talks about the righteous, the wicked, the righteous. He alternates all through Psalm 37 in discussing the characteristics and the advantages that each have. However, when you read Psalm 37 all the way to its conclusion, the righteous have the ultimate advantage. Now, we would have expected that. But here's the tragedy for us and the way we look at it. You see, these two groups of people live side by side. We share the same earth. We share the same resources. In fact, uh, and we refer to this quite a bit, but in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus gives to us his Sermon on the Mount, You'll remember in Matthew chapter 5, he says to us that we are to love our neighbors, and we, we think we're to love our neighbors and hate our enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's a frustrating thing to deal with. I know that's an, that's an offensive, I mean offensive in the mean that, you know, we're playing football, you have an offensive string and you have a defensive strength. And I realize that that's a strategy that the Lord wants us to apply so that we can reach the hearts of our enemies. I realize that. The Bible also, in Jesus, talks about how sometimes you have to flee the enemy. But here's what he says to us that I think it's important for us to understand in verse 45. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We share this. We share this world. And sometimes our frustrations really, really, really get the better of us. In 2 Corinthians, we have another good illustration, the Apostle Paul. He's trying to deal with sin in the church. He's trying to deal with um, believers who kind of lost their way or believers who have fallen into some sin. And he says in verse 9 of chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters because they're your neighbors. 
They're the people you do business with. They're the people you rub shoulders with. He says, if you wanted to separate yourself from all of the iniquity around you, what does he say you're going to have to do? Verse 10, you're going to have to go out of the world. You're just going to have to find yourself a rocket ship, and you're going to have to put yourself into space. See, we live side by side. The Bible has a lot to say about how we are to get along. The Bible has a lot to say about how we are to keep our distance, you see. But Psalm 37 really captures this problem that we have and deals with our fretting, our envy, and our anger. I like the New King James Version heading on Psalm 37, the heritage of the righteous and the calamity of the wicked. I like that. I like that because if you read the psalm through, you would have to come to that conclusion. Now, here's the interesting thing. Regarding the wicked, regarding the wicked, you're going to trace this thought all the way through the psalms. It's going to show up one, two, three, four, five, several times. Here's the thought. The thought is, and it begins in verse 2, where the Bible says, Don't be envious and fret for evil workers, for they shall what? They shall soon be cut down. And I love the word pictures, like mowing the grass. We allow the grass to grow up, and then we mow it down. I, I have an excuse uh, that I use in my yard so that I don't have to cut it as often as I do. I say I let that clover grow up so the bees can have it. Then, then I'll cut it down. Should have cut it yesterday. But I'm going to wait till next week and let the bees have a little bit more of the clover. But you see, the point is that grass isn't allowed to grow very high. It doesn't last very long. It's not like a tree in the forest that lasts for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And he says then the workers of iniquity are like that. They're like the grass that gets cut and withers away. Now you follow that same thing in verse 10, for yet a little while the wicked shall be no more. You follow that into verse 13, the Lord laughs at him when the wicked gnashes his teeth at the righteous, the Lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming. His day is coming. Not only that, but if you go to 34, the Bible even says that you and I are going to get a chance to see it. Wait on the Lord, keep his way. He'll exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Now, that's, that's the overarching observation that we make about the wicked. What about the righteous? What's the overarching observation that we make about the righteous? Well, it begins in verse 9, if I may give it to you. He's given us several commandments already in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. And now he gives us the reason for them, why they're so valuable, why they're so important. He says, for evildoers, verse 9, shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall what? Inherit the earth. Does he say it only once in this passage of Scripture? No. 
Go to verse 11. But the meek shall what? Inherit the earth. Does he say it just two times in this passage of Scripture? No. Verse 18. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be what? Forever. And you can put in there, their inheritance includes what he's already told us. And now he says something else. Not only will we inherit the earth, but we will inherit it forever. Does he do it just three times? No, he doesn't do it just three times. Go down to verse 22. For those blessed by him shall what? Everybody together. Inherit the earth. Does he say it just four times? No, he doesn't just say it four times. He says it verse 27. Depart from evil, do good, and what? Dwell, and you can add the words, dwell in the earth forevermore. Is that the last time he says it? No, verse 29, the righteous shall what? Everybody together, inherit the land, and what? Dwell in it forever. How about verse 34? It puts a cap on all of it, doesn't it? Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to what? Inherit the land. That makes it pretty personal. It's a little bit more personal when he says it that way, I believe, because you and I can easily identify with the piece of ground that we're standing on. The Jews could identify with the piece of ground that they were standing on. They understood what God was saying. Now, as a pastor, and I'm starting to change my thinking about this, but as a pastor, when I prepare a sermon, I prepare it with the idea that a skeptic, you know what a skeptic is, don't you? He's a person that doesn't believe what you believe, and he's going to try to tear, tear down everything you think. But I always think of a skeptic or a critic. You know what a critic is, right? He's going to criticize everything you say, and he's going to try to buck you every, 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 part of the, every, part, uh, every step of the way that you develop a topic or you talk about God's Word. But when I, when I prepare sermons, I prepare them with the idea that I'm going to be confronted by a skeptic or a critic. The thing that I'm thinking of changing is I don't come into the pulpit with that information. I don't come into the pulpit and say, well, now I'm going to explain what a critic would do with this passage of Scripture. But if I were a critic or a skeptic, I would ask a series of questions to try to derail you in what you just read. I would say, who wrote it? David wrote it. When did he write it? All oh, about 3,000 years ago. That sounds like a long time ago, doesn't it? About 2,900. Close enough. Well, who did he write it to? Well, he wrote it to the Jewish people of the Old Testament. And if I were a critic then, I would try to derail you with this thought. Well, my conclusion then is that all of the promises that David put in here, even if he were talking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all of these promises were for another day and age. You see, David's probably talking just about the land of milk and honey. 
he's talking to the Jewish people, and he's talking about the land of Canaan. And he's saying to them, if they are righteous, they'll get to live in the land forever. That's what I would do if I were a critic. And then if I said to him, no, 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 there's a lot more to that, I would, as a critic, I would just, I would be all over him. I would be all over him, and I would say, well, you'll be dead and gone before that happens. You won't get to experience it anyway. You'll be dead and gone. You'll miss it all. Now, you and I have answers for that, don't we? You and I know that that's, you know, critic. I I see some of the strangest things that people do to try to derail believers. And my first response to some of the things I hear is, you know what? The Bible says that you're not able to understand spiritual things because you are trying to look at it from the natural mind. And that's why it's so nonsensical to you. That's why you can't appreciate it. That's why you can't understand it. So I got to ask you this question. Does this passage of Scripture apply to me 2,900 years later? Or was it just for that day and age? Can I personalize this passage of Scripture for me? Isn't that fair enough? What's your answer? Yes. Prove it. (laughs) Go to verse 11. (laughs) Verse 11 Verse 11, what does verse 11 say? But the meek shall what? Inherit the earth. I remember hearing that somewhere else, don't you? Where do you remember hearing it? I remember hearing that from the lips of Jesus in the New Testament when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And you know what? What's really nice is Jesus personalized that for all of the people living in his day. You see, he didn't say, well, you know, that was for that age. In Matthew chapter 5, what does it say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And here's the one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I can personalize that. I can go back to that psalm and I can say, now here are the details because no doubt this is what Jesus had in his mind when he quoted that passage of Scripture. Can I personalize that? Listen, listen, look at your bulletin. Look at the front of your bulletin. There is a passage of Scripture from Zephaniah on the front of your bulletin. Zephaniah, the third book from the end of the Old Testament, Zephaniah. And Zephaniah is a passage, is, is a book that was written that discusses that hectic age, that political and religious age that was just a mess for the children of Israel. But from time to time, God would bring about a revival. Zephaniah hammers home his message repeatedly that the day of the Lord, judgment day, is coming when the malignancy of sin will be dealt with, Israel and her Gentile neighbors will soon experience the crushing hand of God's wrath. But after the chastening process is complete, 
Blessing will come in the person of the Messiah. And as soon as we understand that it's the person of the Messiah that's going to correct it all, we can now personalize it. We can take it through the Old Testament, into the New Testament, up to this day and age. And when you read that passage of Scripture, the Lord thy God will rejoice over thee with joy. And you read it in the context, because it's a great context. You ought, to, you ought to really take some time to do that. He's talking about, I believe, the millennial reign of Christ, which is yet to come. In any event, if you don't personalize that, if you can't see any way to personalize that, we need to talk. Okay? <laughs> Does this apply to me? Of course it applies to me. Now, the application of this was pretty simple to all of us. If you go back to Psalm 37 for a second, I just want to remind you, um, Zach brought in all of, the, all of the commandments that the Lord gave to us here. But I just want to read verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 just to put us back on track. What are we supposed to do? Number one, trust in the Lord. Number two, do good. Number three, dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. I don't, I don't need to go into a hole and hide. I don't need to pack up all my belongings and go to the top of a high mountain and wait for the second coming of Christ. God wants me to live my life day by day. He wants me to dwell in the land, and He wants me to focus not on the evildoer and the workers of iniquity. He wants me to focus on the faithfulness of God. Feed on His faithfulness. And there are many examples in here how God is faithful to us through all of our times of trouble. Doesn't mean we don't have problems and difficulties. This whole situation is froth with problems and difficulties. But we are to trust, do good, dwell in the land, try to live our lives normally. We're to go to school, we're to go to work, we're to grow up, we're to get married, we're to, we're to have jobs, we're to, we're, to, we're, to, we're to recreate, we're to do all of that. God wants us to dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. And on during, in all of that, He wants us to delight in the Lord and commit our way to Him. And then He ends in verse 7 by saying what? Number one, rest and do what? Wait patiently for Him. You see, because the application has to include the fact that God wants us to be patient and wait on Him. If I were to trace this word through this psalm, you would say, makes perfect sense, you see. The Bible says that they shall be cut down. You know what the critic's going to do with that? The critic's going to say, oh, yes, right, they'll soon be shut down. They'll soon be cut down. Yeah, right, surely. Well, you know, that's kind of a relative term to some degree, especially as far as the Lord is concerned. If God says it's soon, then it's what? It's soon. We have lots of historical examples of that in some of the worst tragedies that have ever befall, befallen this, this world in which we live. But if I trace that word for the verse 2, I'm going to see shall be. For evildoers shall be cut off, verse 9. Verse 10, for yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. 
If I go to verse 15, the sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. In verse 17, I could go through the whole passage of Scripture and I would have to admit that I am supposed to be patient and wait on God to bring it about. If I don't, I'll fret, I'll be envious perhaps, and it will eat me up with my anger. But I have a final thing that I want to say to you, and then I want to read my favorite passage of Scripture that deals with this. Being righteous does not mean having your own personal moral standard that you live by. Being wicked is identified in Scripture and, in, and, and, and describes people who will not, will not listen to the Lord, will not obey the Lord will live their lives in their own personal selfishness, will disregard the commandments of the Lord, being righteous. You know, we have a lot of self-righteousness in this world in which we live. We have a lot of groups of people in this world who think they're the right group. They're the righteous group. Everybody else is wrong. Here's the thing that you and I need to keep in mind when we look at the righteousness we are given the characteristics of righteousness here. We don't have the gospel given to us word for word. It's implied in the results, in the changed hearts, in the people who commit their way to the Lord, in the people who trust the Lord, in the people who delight in the Lord. You see, it's an Old Testament passage of Scripture. You see, and you either believed God or you didn't believe God. Being righteous means being right with God. So put that, put that up front there, you know, being righteous, you know, because sometimes we come up with our own standard of what we think is right and what we think is wrong. But being righteous is what? Everybody together, being right with, I should do it this way, being right with God. And I only know of one way to be right with God. Old Testament says Abraham believed God and he accounted it to him for righteousness. He trusts God with everything. The promises of salvation through the coming Messiah, he trusted God with that. And God accounted it to him for righteousness. And the only way I know for us to be right with God is to be right with God because we are right with him through salvation granted to us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, who Abraham would have easily embraced had it happened in his day and age. Now, I want to end with Isaiah 33. I love the book of Isaiah. It's just filled with not only trials and problems and difficulties and stuff like that, but it's filled with wonderful things as well. And I'm only going to jump from one verse to another chapter to another chapter, but the chapters are all together. It's chapters 32 and 33. And in chapter 32 of Isaiah, verse 1, the Bible says what? Let's all read this together. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Are you thinking about that? 
Go to chapter 32, verse 18. My people will dwell in a what? Peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Now just focus, focus on that, focus on that. Don't, don't, be, don't be going to all the other stuff right around that for the moment. Go to chapter 33, verse 17. All this is connected with details that I don't have time to share. But if you go to 33, verse 17, verse, what does it say? Everybody together. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Sometimes I wonder if the Jewish people had a little bit of an idea that when they were given the land of Canaan, it didn't just mean that. It didn't just mean that. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. And then jump to verses 20, 21, and 22. The last three verses I will read. And I want you to think about the millennial reign of Christ when we read these. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home a tabernacle that will not be taken down. No one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the majestic Lord will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley, that's a warship, with oars will sail. Nor majestic ships pass by. Everybody, 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. I like this passage because it was used to put together the Constitution of the United States with the three branches of government. I like it for that reason, but I like it for other reasons as well, because this really, this really gives to us um, the administration of God's kingdom under the Messiah in the new heaven and the new earth. Or starting with a millennial reign. I, and I've always said, if, if you can't come to the conclusion that there's going to be a millennial reign, I say, well, that's okay, don't worry about it. Because everybody agrees that if you, if you, if you don't look at a thousand-year reign of Christ, and I think it's going to be God's gift to the Jewish people to some degree, new heaven and earth follows it. So I say, in one respect, what's the difference? What's the difference? Christ will reign. Christ will rule. And guess what? We won't have to worry about being shoulder to shoulder with the workers of iniquity and the evildoer, will we? They'll be long gone. If I were to read Psalm 37, they will be long gone. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the encouragement. And Father, in these, in these days, in our immediate context, we need to be encouraged when we see what's happening around us. Lord, we thank you that you promised to return. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're going to come, and you're going to reign, and you're going to rule. Father, we will inherit the earth. 
And Lord, when we imagine that time, we imagine you bringing from heaven all of those who are with you. We, we imagine resurrection day when all of our bodies will be transformed and changed, reunited with the spirit or soul. Father, it's almost impossible for us to even think about it and picture it the way you've described it. But Father, it's a promise that we believe regardless of what the skeptics say, regardless of what the critics do, regardless of what people want to say in their own normal, depraved human way of thinking things. You promise it. And we know it's going to happen. In Jesus' name, we look forward to it with patience, waiting for you to accomplish your purpose. In his precious name we pray, amen.